Welcome to the JMD Podcast, your fortnightly dose of metabolic medicine. In regular episodes, we bring you author interviews discussing recent work from the journal and allowing our guests to fill in the gaps that may have been lost in the edit. There are over 80 episodes of the podcast to date, so be sure to check out our back catalogue, but not before listening to this latest episode on diagnostic algorithms and quality of life in the porphyrias. Welcome back. As regular listeners to the podcast will know, I take great pleasure in bringing two or more articles on the same topic together in a podcast as it really fleshes out what we can discuss. So it was something of a gift when I was planning a Porphyria podcast based on two papers and then we published another one. These ensemble pieces are only as good as their guests. And to make this episode even more special, I've invited a co-host, Kristen Whedon from the United Porphyrias Association is joining me to add the patient perspective to this podcast. Kristen, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you, James. And alongside Kristen, we've got three wonderful guests. Dr. David Kasserman of the Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Center for Metabolic Diseases in Louvain. Dr. Peter Vermish of the Clinical Department of Laboratory Medicine, also in Louvain. And Dr. Amy Dickey of Harvard Medical School and the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. Amy, Peter and David, welcome to the podcast. A pleasure. Hello. It's a pleasure. So we've been able to include patient representation in a number of our podcasts. I think it's so important to keep patients um, at the centre of, of research. Uh, how is it that the United Porphyrias Association involves itself in research? So the United Porphyrias Association is a patient advocacy organisation based in the United States. However, we do work with patients across the world and healthcare professionals across the world as well. We are particularly focused on improving the quality of life of porphyria patients, their community across the world. And we do that through a focus on disease awareness, on education, and focusing on advancing research and therapeutics. And we really focus on the research piece because nothing will move forward unless the patient community comes together, joins the healthcare professionals, and learns more about this group of diseases. You've mentioned raising disease awareness there. Porphyria is one of those unusual differentials that I think most doctors have heard of, but I think perhaps not many of us fully understand. And for me, as an Englishman, it's inevitably linked with stories from royal history. Could I ask one of you or any of you to begin by just explaining a little bit about what porphyria is? So the porphyrias are a a group of diseases, but uh, very different phenotypes, basically. And they are all caused by uh, enzymatic defects in the heme synthesis pathway. But looking at all diseases in the group, we can safely say that some of them present with acute neuropathy and pain, and the others present with acute phototoxicity reactions in the skin. That within the acute phototoxicity reactions in the skin, you can distinguish between blistering and burning porphyrias. So the burning is most often due to EPP, erythropoietic protoporphyria, and the blistering is most often due to variegate porphyria and the coproporphyrias. Then the acute porphyrias, most often that's acute intermittent porphyria, but also the variegate and the HCP porphyria can present with episodes of acute neuropathy. And that is a quick overview of porphyrias, but basically what uh, the general physicians should know about it is that they exist that you can have different presentations of diseases affecting the same pathway, the heme synthesis pathway, and that either they present with skin lesions or with acute episodes of pain, neuropathy, paralysis even, and sometimes psychiatric complaints, and that all these diseases are due to 
defects somewhere along the assembly line of the heme molecules. You've made that sound very simple. I presume that, Kristen, it's not that easy for people to get diagnosed, though. No, there are so many failure points in diagnosis. The first being that within the acute porphyrias, the very initial failure point is a physician thinking about porphyria as a potential diagnosis. And you mentioned at the beginning that most physicians have heard about the porphyrias in medical school. Maybe it's a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs or a question on a board exam, but most will never have seen a case in their lifetime. So it's not top of mind. So within the acute porphyrias, if a patient presents with the acute abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, that um, psychiatric component that Dr. Kassaman indicated, they may not think of porphyria. However, maybe Dr. Dickey could um, share a little bit more about the actual diagnosis. So when a patient presents with those potential symptoms, what is it that a physician needs to do to, to screen or test for acute porphyria? Well, to start with the urine porphyrolinogen, I think is the key test for the acute porphyrias. And then for the blistering photosensitivity, it's the urine or plasma porphyrins. And for EPP, the painful photosensitivity, it's erythrocyte protoporphyrin. I think a lot of the expert centers were already doing a lot of it very similarly to begin with, but it's helpful to have these algorithms, especially for people who aren't at expert centers who aren't very familiar with the porphyrias. There's not very many patients. There can't be that many porphyria experts. So it's really important to have algorithms that anyone can pick up and use when they have a patient where they're concerned about porphyria. So the focus of the, the first paper we're discussing is these diagnostic algorithms that Peter and David have worked on. As Amy said, you've got very few patients to work with. So how do you go about developing a usable algorithm? Well, maybe uh, first we need to explain why we thought it could be helpful or it could be meaningful to look into developing algorithms. Many, many reference handbooks mention algorithms, how to go about cascade testing for specific types of porphyria and how to then hopefully reach an endpoint where you have a, a definite diagnosis of a, a subtype of porphyria. But actually where I think things go wrong, and that is also one of the reasons that we embarked on that project, is when finally a doctor thinks about trying to diagnose a porphyria in a patient where it would be justified to do so, then often they tick the wrong boxes or they order the wrong tests to uh, make progress in diagnosing that porphyria. And one of the, the things that we have been thinking about in the meantime, after we worked on these diagnostic algorithms, is actually to change the names of these tests because porphobilinogen, uh, I cannot even pronounce it, porphobilinogen on a urine spot is the test you should be performing in the acute peripherias. But there is no logic link between PBG testing on urine and having a phenotype of acute peripheria. So what we actually maybe should be doing is calling it acute porphyria test. But once that hurdle has been taken and, and the test turns out to be positive, then I think it's more a, a specialistic workup that you need. And that also uh, is not too familiar terrain for, for most physicians. And then it's good to have a reference where they can just look at, this is the algorithm that I should be following. Is this positive? Yes or no? Uh, and then you go down the line of testing. So once the first hurdle, thinking about it, then the second hurdle, ticking the right box and ordering the right test, once that is behind you, then actually what you need is an algorithm because so few people have to go through that workup and so few colleagues have to go through thinking about which next test to, to order 
that probably it's a good idea to have a kind of reference where it's all written out for you. I also think indeed one of the particular challenges, as, as Kristen said, there are a lot of points where failure can occur. And one of the typical problems with acute porphyria is the fact that uh, you need to do the test during the acute episode. So obviously at that moment, if you order porphyrins and you didn't order, for example, PBG afterwards, unless you would have stored the sample, let's say you end up with a major problem. Obviously you can do genetics, but a particular challenge with acute intermittent porphyria, the fact that you have a, a mutation doesn't mean you will ever develop the disease. So it's crucial that testing is performed during an acute episode. Otherwise you're kind of, a, certainly if you do genetics, and you have a mutation, you're kind of in somewhat gray zone. And in fact, you can't really answer to the patient whether or not he or she is at risk of, of an acute porphyria attack in the near future, maybe. And as David already said, the idea of the algorithm, in fact, is also to its colleagues, let's say, not working in the expert centers, rather to give them, let's say, a, a starting point. And we regularly see that PBG, for example, causes confusion. Acute porphyria should be associated with increased porphyrin, which is generally occurring, but it's not the most sensitive test. So in fact, you should have asked PBG. Eh? People make the wrong association. And that is a, a particular challenge, I think, in porphyria. Even the erythrocyte protoporphyrin test, to give you an example, is a particular challenge because the name that is typically used <laughs> for the free erythrocyte protoporphyrin test measures total protoporphyrins. The confusion is, in fact, <laughs> in porphyria testing even greater than you sometimes have in other disciplines. So let's say education and guiding in laboratory test requesting is particularly important in porphyria. Along with having high suspicion for porphyria among the healthcare community, it may have low results in number of patients you actually diagnose, but a higher suspicion can help more patients get diagnosed earlier. And so important with that is that could help to avoid related chronic symptoms if they have a name to the disease, start management and treatment far earlier. Can I just um, pick you up on something that you mentioned, Peter, about the genetic testing? Because I've just come back from a big genomics meeting and people were saying everyone's going to get their genome done. People are going to get sequenced all the time. It'll be as easy to order a whole genome as, a, as, as an FBC uh, or a CBC, depending on where you are. But does that mean that people are going to find out they've got a mutation, but then that doesn't mean they've got a diagnosis? Have you got an algorithm for those patients? We, we are not doing the genetics ourselves, but indeed, I think acute intermittent porphyria is a great example of a disease where doing whole genome sequencing and reporting the results to everybody will cause a cause of a lot of, let's say, um, uncertainty, anxiety among patients, whether or not they are at risk even of developing the disease. Because even if you would go to a situation, let's say, newborn whole genome screening, you never know. Symptoms anyway for acute porphyria don't develop early on. Most people will even never develop symptoms. This will cause probably a lot of anxiety. So I think this is a great example of a disease where it might be preferable not to just report the results to, to everybody, I think. Yeah, I second that. The penetrance of known pathogenic variants in the acute porphyrias is about 1%. So the large majority of people, because you can't call them patients, people carrying a variant that is known to be associated with disease in some, most of those will never have any symptoms or maybe a small episode here or there during their life. And that's it. 
And then the penetrance of disease or the penetrance of the phenotype becomes a bit higher within families, we think, where one index patient has already developed symptoms because that is done in a context of a genetic makeup within that family that apparently promotes the phenotype. But still, it's very low penetrance. And therefore, it's probably not justified to screen genetically for these diseases. You always need a biochemical confirmation of pathogenicity. Even if in some family, this variant has caused disease, that doesn't mean that in your family with the same variant, it's going to cause trouble. So it's a matter of ongoing debate. But as far as I know, nowadays, these are not on the list of actionable findings because the penetrance is too low. Yeah, I definitely agree. And the acute porphyrias and AIP, the prevalence of the pathogenic variants is about one in 1600, but the you know, prevalence of diagnosed acute porphyria is about five in 100,000, I believe. And it's unclear how much of that is to misdiagnosis, but certainly the penetrance is quite low. So genetics doesn't tell you if you're having active disease. And I've definitely seen patients in my clinic who had pathogenic variants from screenings who never had symptoms. And these patients were quite worried when maybe they shouldn't be quite so worried about their disease. And my experience specifically, I have um, EPP and the genetics and EPP is actually very difficult as well, because there's actually a large percentage of patients who have very large deletions or cryptic variants where they don't actually ever find a pathogenic variant. And for myself specifically, I have you know, very positive biochemical findings, but for a long time, they weren't able to find the pathogenic variant because it was a large deletion. My blood was sent to many different expert centers trying to find a, the variant and finally they found it. But you know, if we were using genetic testing first, then they would have told me I didn't have EPP initially. So just agreeing with everyone else that it's not great to rely completely on genetic testing. Thank you. Sorry, it's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's going to be something that will be of, of interest to people and, and especially in the, the era we're moving into, it's important we don't neglect the biochemistry and the importance of that. Um, if we come back to these algorithms, I know they've, they're beautifully set out in the paper. There's some very clear diagrams and those papers are obviously available for listeners to read. But I wonder if you could briefly summarize how they work. So we, we make an initial distinction, let's say, between the acute porphyria, where, for example, we not only ask for PBG, but also for the porphyrins in urine and delta-aminolivulinic acid. One could somewhat argue about the delta-aminolivulinic acid. There is a very rare variant. <laughs> the first step, in fact, just before the acute porphyria is causing similar problems, but there are only a couple of patients who have ever been described, and there you could have a normal PBG. But we include uh, delta-aminolivulinic acid also for typical differential diagnosis. You could have tyrosinemia type 1, but it depends obviously whether it would have been missed in newborn screening. But, uh, also, that intoxication can cause abdominal pain, so also episodes and neurological symptoms. So we'll, we'll go a bit on the safe side there. But you can do all the, of these tests in a single sample. That's a bit the idea where you have a single urine sample. You need to shield it from light. You can do all the testing. And you can do, in fact, also do the initial follow-up testing, which would be HPLC or LCMS for the porphyrins on the same sample. So that means with this sample, you can already go down quite far in the algorithm. So for the initial workup, that should uh, suffice. And then we make a distinction for the cutaneous porphyrias, acute photosensitivity, which is a typical erythrocyte protoporphyrin. And then also we ask for porphyrins in plasma, 
One can argue it gives a typical profile in erythropoietic protoporphyria. That is not necessary, but once again, it's a kind of a confirmation. And if somebody who is not a dermatologist obviously orders the testing, that is somewhat of a safeguard because the plasma sample can allow you also to pick up some of the disorders which give blistering lesions. For the blistering lesions, let's say we ask for porphyrins in urine, as Amy said, and also the porphyrins in plasma. I think that's relatively conventional there, particularly because in, let's say, Flanders, the Netherlands, like in South Africa, we have porphyria variegata, which is relatively common. And the diagnostic test for that, in fact, is porphyrins in plasma. So that's, that can depend uh, somewhat on the local, local situation. The cost of reimbursement of these tests is not so high. Let's say we're not making lots of money <laughs> doing these, uh, these tests. So it's possible for the healthcare system to, to do an extra test, to, let's say, have an extra, some extra certainty and avoid that the patient has to come back. But as Amy said, one could go for a single test as a start for each of the, the categories, except then maybe for the acute porphyria where you could argue it might be safer to also do the aminolivalinic acid and the porphyrins in urine because you need to have the sample during an acute attack. And yeah, how long can it take until the next attack? So that's three starting points there. Acute porphyria, PBG, a la porphyrins in urine, photosensitivity, erythrocyte protoporphyrins and porphyrins in plasma, and then the blistering lesions, porphyrins in urine and porphyrins in plasma. We also test, in fact, the algorithm then. That's what is typically different of other algorithms. You can always say, yeah, but with this test, you can diagnose this disorder. But then the question is, how often do you miss it? But also, on the other hand, as relevant, how often is this test false positive? Because if you have a number of false positive results, doctors will also get somewhat demotivated to uh, continue testing. So that's also what we did. And in fact, the specificity of the algorithms was good. So we see we have relatively rarely false positive patients, which is uh, always, let's say, a comfort <laughs> from a lab perspective that is uh, quite okay. From the patient perspective, if the algorithm is validated at an expert center, perhaps a more general physician or local healthcare professional would be willing to do the appropriate testing and, again, have that suspicion that could result in a patient that is diagnosed far earlier for a group of diseases that are largely, except for the blistering porphyria, is largely invisible. So I just want to kind of get that point out that that suspicion too has to be from physicians listening to the patients who also may have done a lot of research here to get to the point of going to healthcare professionals and saying they suspect a type of porphyria. But I think it's so important to have that algorithm in place so that it is validated for local physicians if they do their research and believe the patient that there is something going on um, and suspect porphyria. Certainly. So the message so far is we want people to think porphyria. We then want them to send the right test, which the algorithm very succinctly will point out across the three different main categories, as you said. So that brings us on to once we've got our diagnosed patients looking at the impact of the disease on them, and that's what the next two papers concentrate on. We've got two different studies, the Explore B study and the POWER study. Um, I love a good acronym. What are these two all about? How are they the same and how are they different? I can start with that. The goals of this study were to measure quality of life in acute hepatic porphyria. The power study, which I'll speak more to, wanted to look at the effect of TAC rate and quality of life and also the effect of preventative treatments of heme and IV glucose on quality of life. The two studies had somewhat different inclusion criteria. They enrolled patients by different mechanisms and they had different quality of life tools. However, the results were actually pretty similar and very complex 
complementary, which is always great to see in research. And as to the types of quality of life outputs that was looked at in the power study, we wanted to broadly and deeply characterize patients' quality of life across as many domains as possible. We evaluated the PHQ-8 survey, which is a survey for depression, the GAD-7 survey, which is a survey for anxiety, WHYMPI for the impact of pain, the WPAI for work productivity and activity impairment. So these are all standardized surveys that have been used frequently in the past for other diseases. And we also wanted to look at de novo questions to learn about the impact of AHP on patients' social, financial, emotional, and physical health, as well as the impact of various symptoms on patients' lives. Additionally, we looked at the burden on caregivers as well. And the power study was meant to be a global study, so enrolling patients globally from around the world and also globally understanding the quality of life in AHP. Yes, it's indeed comforting to see that the results of both studies come to similar conclusions. And actually, one of the surprising findings of looking more closely at these this patient groups is to find out that not only they have attacks, the acute peripherias, but also between attacks, they're actually pretty invalidated in the sense that they have social, economical problems, uh, employment issues in, in many cases, but they also have medical issues in, in terms of kidney function declining, arterial hypertension, they have risk of developing malignancies that wasn't known as well in, in previous years and, and is becoming more and more clear, but also they have pain issues, they have neuropathy issues. Overall, their quality of life is, is uh, clearly affected compared to healthy, age-matched, gender-matched, uh, socially-matched inhabitants of the same regions. So, this is not just a disease where you have an attack here or there and then you're hospitalized. No, on the contrary, this is a chronic disease which affects all aspects of life and also creates chronic medical issues. So this is a, a new insight that is shared by both studies that are uh, discussed here, which is pretty important because especially when you have to go to developing new treatments and trying to get them reimbursed by insurances or, or national health insurance, then you need to convince these insurers that it's worthwhile trying to, to prevent all these aspects of disease that are accumulating throughout life. And then it's good to know exactly what you're facing in terms of phenotype. I definitely agree. Both studies showed that AHP can very significantly affect quality of life in substantial ways, even when people aren't having very frequent attacks. The quality of life was rather similar depending on attack rate and also depending on whether people were on prophylactic treatment or not. The power study looked at the prophylactic treatments of heman and glucose did not include patients on gavosrin. And I believe the Explore B study looked at the prophylactic treatment of heman specifically but definitely shows that those treatments aren't sufficient to control quality of life in AHP. And actually, neither of them were studied for that purpose. The hemen has been studied for treatment of acute attacks once the attacks happen, not to prevent symptoms as well as glucose. But prior to Gavosarin, there wasn't good strategies to prevent symptoms. And so these studies make it clear that those preventative treatments aren't good enough. And even regardless of attack rate, AHP isn't just a problem with attacks. As David said, there's substantial quality of life impact between attacks. And regardless of attack rate, it very substantially affects patients' quality of life, which is very important to know. 
I think from the patient perspective, having these two studies is just incredibly validating. One of the most common things I say to a patient when I'm talking to them about their symptoms, whether they're in an attack or it's between an attack is, I believe you. And when I say, I believe you, you have something going on. Patients know what these studies did was to support validation of that. So whether it is their productivity, um, the caregiver burden, the pain management, access to treatment, you know, access to pain management treatment, in fact, I think that both studies validated what patients know. So perhaps it will impact insurers, physicians, access to treatment, And I think there's so much we can do with these resources now that we have them. Do these patients experience an issue that's sort of analogous to what's seen in sickle cell disease where patients are being accused of drug seeking and and their pain is being dismissed? Because I know that strong opioids are used in in attacks. You you said, Kristen, that people, you take, I believe you. Is is the issue that healthcare providers are not believing people? Yes, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head with that, James. And it has a huge impact on patients. And your example of sickle cell is spot on in that I've heard both from physicians and patients that we hear much about the pain in sickle cell disease. And within acute porphyria, that is the closest one that I have heard that patients relate that pain to. Yes, I agree with all the things that were said with acute porphyria, because you can't see anything on the outside. A lot of times it's hard for people to take the pain very seriously because pain is such a subjective symptom. So it's important for doctors to believe patients both to get to that diagnosis and then after diagnosis to get the care that is needed with these studies, the power study was actually you know, one survey sent uh, one time, and then the explore study was longitudinal over time. But again, they are essentially patient surveys, so patients reporting their symptoms. So it's important to listen to the patient symptoms and take them seriously. I think there is a lot of opioid use that can be important for the acute porphyries to treat symptoms. But actually, these studies looked primarily on the effect of preventative treatments of heman and IV glucose and showed that they weren't good enough to control symptoms in acute porphyria. Um, talking about chronic pain, actually, I want to add from the power study, it's important that these studies use standardized surveys that have been used in other studies, because then it's able to compare the effect between studies. So looking at the impact of chronic pain on patients' lives, we were able to say that acute porphyria, the impact of chronic pain is similar to that of 120 other patients with chronic pain in a different study, patients with severe rheumatoid arthritis and other chronic pain diseases to be able to show that the pain is similar, as well as depression and anxiety. We use very common surveys, so we're able to show that over 50% of patients had moderate to severe depression and moderate to severe anxiety in our study, which in a 2019 U.S. study of depression, anxiety in the U.S., only 7% of patients had moderate to severe depression and 6% of patients had moderate to severe anxiety. So the burden of those symptoms in acute porphyria is significantly increased from the underlying population. What I wanted to add to that is that I don't think we can overestimate the impact of having all these neurotoxic metabolites accumulating in your system. They are known to cause seizures, paralysis, patients ending up being ventilated in ICUs. They can cause psychosis. They can cause 
neuropathies, so polyneuropathy complaints, etc. So it's important for colleagues to understand that as long as you are having all these metabolites circulating in your blood, in your brain, etc., it will affect the way you function as a person. And I was impressed by the effect of having patients with recurrent AIP attacks, having them transplanted. So if you transplant their livers, suddenly the disease is gone and all these toxic metabolites are no longer accumulating in the, in the system. And these people, it's only a few I've seen, so it's an N of three uh, series, but their personality changes. It's like they have been haunted by these pains and, and these toxic metabolites accumulating for years, and now suddenly this is gone. And they are different people. I cannot stress that enough. If PVG and ALA are accumulating in your system, it affects you as a normal functioning person. I think the complaints these people have are so common that often it's difficult to diagnose them because everyone has abdominal pain once in a while. Female patients having abdominal pains in the second part of their menstrual cycle, they are not uncommon. They often end up with diagnosis of IBS, endometriosis, whatever. And also people feeling bad or not functioning optimally or being forgetful, having uh, muscle weakness, etc. These are all complaints that you can find in the general population. And that is why there is no single complaint or objective issue in these patients that will guide physicians to diagnose them immediately. So it's, it's a spectrum of complaints that are common and none of them is very specific. And that makes it really difficult for doctors to think of this diagnosis. And that's why many of these patients will suffer for years and years. And therefore, I think it is important to, to raise awareness, get them diagnosed, and then probably also get them treated properly and instruct them on how to prevent attacks from occurring. That was very well said, Dr. Kasteman. I think that what's interesting is I hear when I talk to healthcare professionals, I hear the words neurotoxins or you know toxic metabolites and I hear uh, your description and then what I hear from the patient community is it feels like piranhas eating me from the inside or shards of glass in my abdomen or it's like hot pokers trying to get out of my abdomen like those are the type of words that are used by the patient community to describe the horrific debilitating pain that often an acute porphyria attack starts with in addition to all the other symptoms that you discussed. Thank you. If we follow up on you know what you've all just been saying from the pain side, what I'm hearing from you is all of you are just saying how, how debilitating this condition is, both acutely and chronically. But I've also heard lots of mentions around treatment. What is the current treatment landscape for the porphyrias? I think it's maybe a bit sensitive to discuss that too much. We've mentioned the transplantation, gifosiran, hemin, maybe glucose, IV, etc. But it's not entirely clear uh, at this point where we're going with the indications for liver transplantation for gifosiran. Is that strictly a preventive treatment? Is it going to be a treatment that we start up uh, after one attack in a newly diagnosed patient? 
I would like to speak to that. I co-direct a porphyry clinic here at Mass General, and we take care of a lot of patients. And there may be more research coming down the line about specifically when we should use what treatment in the future. But currently, the treatment that has been evaluated for preventing attacks is gavosarin. And that medication wasn't studied in either of these studies. So we actually don't know the effect of that treatment on quality of life. Based on what I've seen in patients, I would expect that it would have a very significant impact on quality of life. So it's great that we do have a therapy now that has been studied for preventing acute attacks in acute porphyria. And the medication that has been studied for treating acute attacks in acute porphyria is hemen. Maybe gavosarin has a similar role. It just hasn't been studied in that setting yet. Maybe there will be studies in the future, but that medication is basically IV heme that basically provides negative feedback on the pathway to treat the accumulation of these toxic intermediates in acute porphyria. And glucose can also similarly decrease some of the accumulation of the toxic intermediates, although is thought to be less strong and less powerful than uh, hemen. So those are some of the common treatments that we use now for acute porphyria. The power study looked at hemen and glucose, not gavosarin, but in the future, it would be um, really important to look at the impact of gavosarin on quality of life as well. Uh, so Nifosiran has been around for quite some time now, and, and the patients that were included in the trials, they have been going on uh, being treated for, for quite some time as well, but it didn't crystallize out yet uh, what the effect is on, for instance, renal function or these chronic symptoms or even quality of life. It's been really troublesome to tease out the effect on the quality of life of patients that have been on treatment. That is one of the one of the endpoints of the studies that have been performed so far that hasn't really come through. Surprisingly, uh, it's very difficult to see changes in quality of life and link them to to treatment, etc. That's a given because quality of life is dependent on so many other things than than simply your disease and whether or not you receive treatment. Uh, so, but the expectation is indeed that if you lower the neurotoxic metabolites that are circulating by administering uh, gifosidan treatment, the expectation definitely is that you would be affecting all the other aspects of disease as well. But we're not there yet to really show that convincingly. Yeah, we didn't show that through these studies, but that is something that we, you know, is a future direction that should be done in Porphyria to have studies on the effect of gavosarin on quality of life. You know, as a physician taking care of acute Porphyria patients, it seems like it's definitely changed the lives of some of the patients that I've taken care of, which is exciting to see. Yes. So it feels like there's a, a gap between where we are and where we want to be. Um, and we, we would like better treatments and especially around the, the chronic aspects of the disease. So I think with, with that in mind, perhaps we could finish by asking what are your hopes for the for the future management and future care of people with, with the porphyrias? So now there's therapies for acute attacks and therapies that have been studied to prevent attacks. It would be really important, like mentioned, to study the effect of gavosarin on quality of life over time. And it's exciting for all the porphyrias that there is now new therapies. There's gavosarin for acute porphyria. There's new therapy for EPP. So it's actually a very exciting time to be researching porphyria because there's 
you know, various new treatments coming. So I think going forward as a physician and researcher trying to evaluate the effect on patients and to support clinical trials to test these new therapies is important. I agree. And also one of the themes that we see in rare disease fields is that when new drugs are coming to market and uh, start to be used, suddenly there's much more focus and much more attention for the disease or the disease group. And suddenly you see the community learning a lot about the disease and also figuring out how the treatment is affecting different aspects of the disease. So that's making progress when all we can do for, for a rare disease group is to study the natural history. That is very important, but it's even more satisfying to, to do the experiment, basically, where you administer a new drug and then see what results you can get with that and where the gaps still are, what still needs to be addressed. And then people can start trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, maybe, maybe one thing, but it's a long shot for porphyria. Awareness, I think, is vital for diagnosis in the short term. But my hope for the longer term is that, let's say, structured data, computer-assisted requesting of laboratory tests uh, will help in, let's say, the initial phase. For example, when a patient presents repetitively with relatively vague abdominal complaints, for example, linked to the second half of the menstrual cycle, neurologic symptoms, that there will be kind of pop-ups or suggestions of, ah, this is not the first time. Maybe you should think about porphyria and offer also the possibility for the testing. I think it's crucial to have the awareness we had a great example uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I was with my parents-in-law. I read the newspaper. I said, uh-huh, an, an article about, about vampire disease, which would then be <laughs> EPP, <laughs> typically, which is kind of the people who are, uh, let's say, avoiding sunlight. What happens uh, a couple of days later, I get the sample requested by a GP of a 38-year-old patient who was diagnosed at the age of 10 with, uh, let's say, sun allergy. But she read the article. <laughs> she went to the GP. She said, I have this. <laughs> Please test me. So awareness, I think, is 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 vital. So I think also the fact that there's a, an annual porphyria awareness week, et cetera, I think is is very important. But I hope that uh, algorithms AI can can, let's say, also further support and, and make earlier diagnosis much easier for patients. You sound like a, a scientist frustrated with clinicians who's hoping a, a Microsoft paperclip is going to say, maybe you should think about porphyria when we're, yeah. uh, we're doing our tests. Kristen, perhaps I could let you have the last word on this. Well, sure. Well, Peter, I want to tell you first that that the, the idea that your article just helped one patient get diagnosed means everything for that patient. And one by one, I think we can impact those patients with porphyria. So at United Porphyria's Association, we envision a world without the pain and the challenges of porphyria. And we hope for more research. We hope for more therapies and access to those therapeutics. And the only way to get there is through a really strong collaboration among patients, among physicians, both expert physicians and treating physicians, among researchers, the pharmaceutical industry and advocates. 
Perfect. Well, I'm I'm mindful that I've I've occupied you all for longer than I said I would, but I think it's been a really productive chat. If you would like to read these papers, please look at the links in the podcast description, or you can find David and Peter's papers in the main journal by searching for Perferia, Explore B, and Diagnostic Algorithms. And you can find Amy and Kristen's paper in JMD Reports, where it's available open access. And you can find that by searching for Power and Porphyria. Um, Amy, Kristen, Peter, and David, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.